Hello and welcome to Major Revisions. I'm John Walter and uh, with me is Jeff Atkins and two guest co-hosts, Dr. Christy Portales-Reyes at the University of Georgia and Dr. Lauren Hallett at the University of Oregon. So today we're going to be talking about uh, some stuff around what it means to be early career. Uh, we are all early career, at least by some definition, um, but uh, you know, making moves in our careers. And um, at least that's caused Jeff and I to think about what the meaning of that is. And we invited Lauren and Christy uh, to be part of that conversation as well today. So uh, to kick things off, uh, maybe uh, Christy, you could say a little bit about what career stage you're at, and then we'll kind of keep going around the room until we've gotten to all of us. Yeah, um, thank you so much for inviting us to join this conversation. Um, so I am currently a postdoc, um, as you mentioned, and I am in the process of transitioning to a faculty position in the fall. So I'm in this in-between stage of trying to wrap up this job career stage that I feel like I'm barely figuring out how to do um, and trying to get ready for the next step. Awesome. I told you this off the episode too, but congratulations. That's a really exciting time for you. Thank you yeah. so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Lauren, do you want to go next? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm seven years post PhD and I just submitted my tenure dossier last year. So I think I'm, I'm officially getting kicked out of the early career academic circle in the next year or two, but, but holding on for now. Awesome. Congrats are in order for that too. Hopefully. Thanks. Well, I think putting together the dossier is an achievement worth celebrating in of itself. Yeah. And I'm confident that if your department department knows what's good for it, then they'll be pretty happy with what you've accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. And you may be transitioning away from early career, or maybe you've not been early career for a while. We don't know. I think that's what we hope to explore today. <laughs> Figure it out. <laughs> I, I it, This kind of came up, honestly. I, um, I remember posing this question to John when I was, um, so I, I volunteered for this year to be on the early career you know, network for um, FluxNet. And um, I realized like everyone else in there was like a grad student or a postdoc. And I, I'm a research scientist for the government now. And I had always kind of had this conception of like early career as kind of like a time countdown from PhD of some arbitrary six to eight year mark. And um, it kind of came with the first meeting, like, what is early career? And I remember the, the chair, she said, well, I think it's, to me, it's uh, until you're mentoring or advising people, I was like, oh God, I've had a postdoc for almost a year now. Does that mean I'm not early career anymore? Like, that's weird to me because I'm not. You know, I'm just at like six years from PhD that that's strange to me to think that's not really what it was like in my mind it was always like kind of when you're tenured or something like that so I think that's what at least for me kind of triggered this question of like what the heck actually is early career so because I don't know like I feel that way like I don't feel established at all but I wonder if it's just one of those imposter syndrome things where it's like well I'm never going to feel that way anyway so where do you fit on this John what do you think yeah, so so I am I'm eight years, well, coming up on eight years post PhD, and uh, 
a soft money research scientist. And so, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of some of the kind of timelines that people put on it, like I'm kind of counting down toward the end of being early career. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I feel like there are, you know, maybe some research, uh, career milestones, maybe that people commonly associate with being, uh, transitioning into mid-career that like, I might never hit, right? Like I, um, you know, if I continue on this track, like we'll never have like my own research lab. Um, and I might like, and, and I do like work with students in some capacity, but, um, it's not like my lab group. Um, I'm not on the track to ever earn tenure. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of this fuzzy thing where I'm not quite sure where exactly I fit into it. So I think that then begs the question, where does early career start? And I did not mean to cut you off. I'm very sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that it's interesting to think about it in terms of mentoring, because I think many of us start mentoring students um, or near peers when we are in graduate school, perhaps even in late stage undergrad. Um, so mentoring happens throughout um, in different ways, for me at least. Yeah, definitely. Totally true. So the, the ESA early career section says that it's eight years after graduation into your into a professional position, um, or if you identify as early career, which I think is a very helpful because of this kind of nebulous, what does it mean? And <laughs> right. And it, it for the mentoring one, I, I've sort of thought of it as when you've done the, the types of new hurdles that you might expect in a career. So uh, I didn't feel like I, I, I still feel somewhat early career because I've not graduated a PhD student and that's a big part of being an academic. But I think when my student graduates next month, I'll start to be feeling more like, okay, I've checked that box of job expectations. And at some point when there's a certain quota of job expectations for my chosen career trajectory that I've done at least once, and I have a sense of what is involved in that, I'll feel more mid-career. But when there's when there's still milestones looming of, of what's expected of me and I haven't done them yet, it feels early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it came up what we were talking about, you know, we're talking about this, I guess, initially primarily in an academic context which is helpful in some way because there are these clear kind of milestones that one can point to, whether it be advisement or, you know, advisement student-based, um, tenure-based. Maybe you want to be as, when you land your first X amount dollar grant of some kind, your first major grant maybe, or your career proposal or whatever. So it does seem like from an academic standpoint, it's some kind of nebulous <laughs> milestones <laughs> that, that you could point to, but... Huh. Yeah, but like it does seem like it's something that has more meaning attached to it than like just crossing a threshold of, you know, years since PhD. Wait, okay, question for you, Lauren. Like you were talking about your, your tenure packet. Mm -hmm. So are there, if, if you don't mind, you can go into as much detail or as little as you want, but as far as milestones that you have to tick for that, 
you know, what are, what are those and what type of uh, university are you at? Yeah. So I'm at the university of Oregon. So it's, it's an R1 university. Okay. And so there's, there's three big um, areas that they look at. So research, teaching and service and research they're looking for you switching from, um, from always being like the first author to suddenly being the senior author on, on paper. So I've heard it's like, once you get tenure, you don't ever have to be, you know, first, oh no, once you get a job, you don't have to be first author again. Once you have gotten uh, tenure, you never have to be last author again. And that kind of metric, my, my mentor said that and then said it's impossible to follow because everyone has an ego, but, but that's the kind of the metric that they're looking for a lot of senior author publications. Um, and they're looking for grants that are gonna support a research program into the future. Uh, in terms of research, they're looking that you have experience in, and uh, uh, skill at teaching both um, smaller upper level classes, but then also a large uh, lower division class, which I think is uh, definitely one of those kind of check off boxes that I, I wouldn't have had the training or have felt like I had the capacity as a postdoc. Um, so, so before I'd cross that milestone, it felt, it felt early. And then in terms of service, they're looking for uh, both service to the department and the university. So things like admissions committee, curriculum committee, um, really kind of keeping the department uh, going, doing search committees. Uh, and uh, for us, we have uh, different uh, facilities on campus and having kind of input on committees that keep those going and also service to the profession. So uh, journal reviewing, but starting to move towards say being a journal editor, um, and and promoting things for for the service or for the for the um, uh, the field, and so those are the three main things that I'm evaluated on. This makes me think that perhaps a way to define it is um, degree of independence. So, are you confident in yourself and your abilities, and are your colleagues confident in yourself and your abilities that you can accomplish these um, required milestones on a regular basis? That you will be able to teach those courses, to mentor those students, or to get the money that you need or finish those projects um, that um, would allow them to just say, okay, you, you got this. Um, you, you can do this and we will just let you do your job. Yeah, no, that's really astute. I really like that, Christy. Um, and I think, I think it, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And I think it kind of like points at something that is also really important is that like when you have a good department and support network and stuff like that, like, you know, mentoring changes, but like you can still be mentored at, you know, obviously as a grad student, as a postdoc, but also, you know, as a, you know, early or, or mid-career, you know, person, like, you know, still have um, you know, people who are um, in your corner and supporting you and, and helping you um, to advance through the profession. Um, and it just, yeah, it just kind of looks a little bit, you, tra you transition in different phases um, to being more or less um, independent um, and, you know, to helping other people do more and more um, advanced Kind of stuff as their mentor too. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Christy. And I also think it might point to why there's this kind of tension of what is and what isn't early career. You know, if you think back with the 08 recession, you had a lot of people that were 
becoming super well developed independent scientists, but they weren't in the kind of positions like they, there wasn't opportunity to have the positions to develop, say, in the teaching and mentorship. And so you have a generation from that that wouldn't be early career in terms of their research skill, but still are early career in terms of the other aspects of the job. And I think that's been kind of hard looking at how do you mentor a person in that perspective and maybe uh, sometimes they're a little bit forgotten because their their CV looks so good that there's an assumption that they have the rest. And I, I suspect there'll be a similar uh, phenomenon kind of post-COVID where there's there's people that have been, you know, in postdocs for longer than they probably would have because of hiring freezes. And so they're getting these very well-developed resumes that are skewed more towards the research and making sure that they get the mentorship and still be viewed as early career in other angles, even if they're farther along in their their research uh, development and perhaps also their personal development. That's a really interesting point. I never really thought about how much the the previous you know, kind of economic issue kind of structured things, because that was actually kind of what led me to get into grad school was seeing that, you know, the, uh, I was in a completely different field before and it just kind of upended things. Like, well, okay, when well, else basically the time to go in there to do this one and take another direction and then to think now you know how COVID has really kind of restructured things which is probably another episode that we should do like i think about god the the amount my my presupposition on this is that the amount of meta analyses and review papers that we're going to see for like this like two or three year period is going to be a huge aberration <laughs> compared to everything else because <laughs> like, no one could do anything else but write those like there wasn't it was really difficult to get at least field work out if that was your thing so i want to i want to circle back to a question that we kind of posed a little bit earlier but i don't think we i think we kind of quickly shifted uh away from and that's you know when does when does early career start um and you know maybe a part of maybe a way to start looking at that question is you know are students early career or are they something kind of distinct, right? Like, do they have the same challenges uh, that folks that are, you know, post PhD, but moving through various, you know, different uh, usually kind of contingent roles have, or are they, are they distinct? I've had a big shift in mindset on this recently. So when I was a student, I would have preferred to not be seen as an early career person because I felt the imposter syndrome of, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm in training. I'm a student. Expect what you would expect from a student. But now that I have graduated and work with uh, graduate students, I think of them as my colleagues and I feel confident that if this is a career they choose to pursue, they will continue to be my colleagues. So I now refer to them as early career colleagues, and I don't know how I would have felt about that if I, you know, a couple of years ago. I like the colleague approach. I would feel a lot of pressure on that because I remember it was actually, you know, Deb Lawrence at, at UVA had said like, oh, you can do whatever you want until you get that PhD. That's when the clock starts. And it's like everything after that counts. I was like, oh, okay, that took absolutely zero pressure off of me. Thank you. Um, but, <laughs> but I like the colleague approach and I think that's super important, but I don't know, Lauren, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, 
I don't base my whole life around ESA sections, but but maybe to the degree of what I identify <laughs> as. When I was a student, I was in the ESA student section. And when I was an early career, I was in the ESA early career research session. And, and the fact that there is a differentiation there, I think a little bit holds with me where partly when you're a student, there's there's a roadmap, like, you know, you will pass your quals, you will do this, you will cry. And so, so it's a little bit laid out where you're developing as a scientist, and you're certainly getting all those skills that you're going to continue to need to build on as an early career moving to mid-career scientist. But there's, there's a roadmap, a training program, and a clear end. And early career, I, I think of as more you're a, you're in your first professional positions. And so, there's a little bit more of make make of this what you will. What what type of job will you be in? Uh, how are how are you going to kind of structure your uh, your working life that is feels a little different than being a student? So John doesn't watch movies, but um, <laughs> like this immediately brings to mind like think of like the first Lord of the Rings movie, and I guess you could say books and you know whatever. It feels like there's the point where like Sam and Frodo like bridge off from the gang and like then hit into Mordor themselves. That feels like that's where they've committed and that's where it becomes like the early career trajectory. Whereas before there's like the mentorship, <laughs> you know, until Boromir loses a shit and then it goes crazy. Um, so that's going to be the new metaphor that I keep in my mind based off what you guys have said. So. <laughs> Maybe mid-career happens after the rings. I don't know. So, right, that doesn't this. make it sound less scary though. <laughs> <laughs> Gollum's like the, the version of a postdoc advisor, and that's how that ends up. Um, I don't know, John, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of so I I agree with Christy about you know sort of like the way that we treat people at different stages, um, and like you know I even with like you know, undergraduates, like, I'm kind of like always trying to like, build them up so that they can be a colleague. Um, and so I think that that is like a really, a really important philosophy for, yeah, like how we treat people um, in the field, regardless of what career stage they are nominally at. Um, but I also agree that there is something kind of like, yeah, kind of distinct. And I think it has to do with um, the like post PhD st stage being much more amorphous. Um, like people are doing a lot of different things, um, pursuing different goals, and it looks different for um, a lot of people, even though there are some kind of commonalities um, in experience with, you know, a lot of those positions being, um, you know, contingent and like striving for that um, permanent position, whether that's in, you know, a tenure track faculty position or, um, you know, with an NGO or with the government or something like that. Um, yeah, so I think there are elements of, of both of those um, things that are, that are really true. I would get better if we don't come to a complete consensus on this, so. This is rarely a confrontational podcast. So <laughs> this is about as controversial as we get. Um, I think I default to 
just the PhD thing because it's it's easy and I think the milestones are easier to track because it reminds me of those um you see it less and less now but these early career awards that used to be determined by age where it's like oh if you can't apply to this when you're over 30 it's like dude I started grad school and I was like 28 because I took like six years off I mean that's seems like a wild arbitrary thing like yeah sure if you go straight through then that's one thing but um, you know, having those milestones to turn. But then again, yeah, we're, we're looking at people who are in postdocs now. What's the average postdoc length in life sciences? Like, it feels like it's around four years or more, or probably much more now, but. That sounds about right. Um... That's like based on like probably 2016 numbers when I cared to look at that, but I don't know. I imagine it's probably more like six or seven now, but. Who collates that? Uh, the NSF does that survey. I know I filled it out uh, at least once or twice that kind of routinely kind of comes in. I don't know. And I think, I think Jeremy Fox has also done some of that, like uh, either data collection or analysis specifically looking at ecology and evolution. And I, that's at least the right ballpark. um, But I don't remember offhand what either of those things, things found exactly. And he updates that, it seems like, annually. Like, the survey of the market as best as he can. But I think, isn't that, like, all pulled from, like, EcoEvo jobs or Ecolog or something? Or Yeah, a lot of it is pulled from EcoEvo jobs. I think he did run some polling off of the, off of the blog for some questions, too. But, um, yeah, obviously not a... 100% reliable source, but probably isn't too far off from reality. And I think that differs also based on what country you did your training at and where you were doing your postdocs. Um, seems like there's different approaches to short training period for PhD and longer time as a postdoc um, in different places. And related to the age thing, um, I'm originally from Mexico and there are academic positions that you have to be 32 or younger to get. Oh, younger. Which, yeah, which is scary. Like you have to be done with all your studies and your postdoc and whatever training you want to do and then come back and get that job in like perhaps a one to two year window that you could possibly be ready for um, that type of academic position. Wow. What is possibly the thinking behind that? I don't know. Um, I think it's that I think I think it's a little bit old school that you would go straight from undergrad to some sort of uh, master program to a PhD to to a postdoc and quickly magically the perfect job for you is open and you get it, um, which is not how life works at all. And also, I mean, thinking about um, who these people might be like if you're a person that decided to have a child in the middle of that, or you took a year off because that is a normal thing to do. Um, you might not hit that milestone of having everything for that job by age 32. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that does feel to me like a little bit of a, yeah, a little bit of a relic of like an older, and like an older time when people were making more assumptions about, you know, who was uh, doing what in what time frame. I, I mean, I think even, you know, within, 
US academia, you know, we've kind of like been pushing to change some of those assumptions. Um, like the ESA early career section is a relatively young section that I think, you know, came about only in maybe about the past five years. Um, and I think a lot of it was in response to like the lengthening of the postdoc, you know, stage and um, folks in the society wanting um, to have, you know, more representation and more community for that group of people um, specifically um, since, you know, postdocs, you know, stopped being sort of a, a quick transition um, for a lot of people. Like postdoc them even kind of begin like that wasn't even a thing in the nineties, was it? I don't know if it started like at, as late as that. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know when like the switch happens, but you know, certainly like, you know, in the seventies and earlier, like a lot of times people were walking out of PhDs into faculty positions that were like mostly arranged through sort of like the, you know, the network of people that uh, were in the field and could vouch for a person. Well, okay. I can't say realistically that that's most positions, but like, you know, I think probably all of us have heard stories about, um, you know, positions basically like happening because there was somebody there to fill that, that they, you know, that they wanted, um, that a university wanted. And usually because a senior person vouched for them. Yeah. I mean, like my advisor told me about how he was going to interview for two jobs. He interviewed for the first one and then got an offer before the second interview. So he just took that one. So like, so Lauren, Christy, like your, your advisors, I like your PhD advisor or whatever, did they do postdocs? Like what career stage were they at when you did grad studies? Yeah, I um, had, oh, go for it. Um, I had the unique opportunity to start with a faculty um, mentor that was starting. Um, so um, my advisor, Forrest, um, started his job in like January and I joined in August. So he had done, I believe, four years of a postdoc. Um, but yeah, we were very close in age, like 10 years apart, I think. Uh, when I started and I got to see the whole process of setting up the lab. My postdoc was Kate, or my, my PhD and postdoc advisor was uh, Dr. Uh, Catherine Suding. And I think she did technically three postdocs, but all simultaneous because she got funding for three at the same time. I don't know. She like, she just <laughs> sets it's... high expectations, but I don't know that she actually was in those positions very long before she got her faculty job. So I don't, I don't know quite the timing, but she was, you know, I think some of the postdoc grants kind of turned into some of her earlier research grants as a, as a um, PI, I, I believe. Um, she was one or two years post-tenure when I started working with her. So I saw a different window of, of where someone is at their career stage than Christy has. John, what about you? Uh, where, was, where was Kyle at? So I was Kyle's first PhD student. And so he did, I want to say... I think he did two postdocs before getting the job at Blandy, but I think, I think it was, you know, a total of like three or four years as a postdoc um, before 
before he got his faculty job. Yeah, yeah. Howie was older. He he. I think he started in '98 or '99, and he never did a post. Like he went straight from Colorado State, and yeah, because he. I remember he he turned full professor while I was there, so he was already like well had been an associate for a while. Um, so it's just like, you know, kind of a different landscape that he came out into. He's like, yeah, there's more jobs than there were people to fill them, which is absolutely absurd and wild to me. Unless I guess you, unless you count adjunct jobs, and then there really are more of those because that seems to be the mode now is that if you have somebody retire you just open up four adjunct positions and then pay them like a thousand dollars class or something silly christy i like the highlighting you did of how this plays out in different countries um so i did my master's in australia and it was really common to have people be in research associate jobs for a long time and they'd be very developed scientists you know, mentoring PhD students, kind of doing all of that, but the there was more of a hierarchy where there were fewer kind of tenure track jobs and more of this research associate. And so, of thinking about what that means from what for what is early career there versus not, I kind of like the idea of thinking of it as as time since PhD, but maybe time in a professional job since PhD um, as a way of accounting for. You know, people that need to take a leave of absence for personal reasons or something like that, where there's a little bit of a clock stop um, versus just saying it's time that is marched on in your life, regardless of what you were doing at that time. I really like that idea, actually, like an idea of like service time, quote unquote. There's like, um, I'm big into metaphors, but like in baseball, before you become like move up to the stage of like, you know, what's called like free agency, you have to do service time. And service time is calculated as like a percentage of time that you spend at like the highest level. You, so say you come up and then you get sent back down or whatever. It's not like total, it's total time that you're up till you hit this like arbitrary five-year mark <laughs> or whatever. I, I kind of like that is that along with an axis of the, uh, you know, how do you identify? Because if, yeah, if you should, you know, leaves of absence, you know, for whatever reason, shouldn't be counted against you. And I kind of hope that, you know, COVID counts as like there's some allotment allowed for that. (laughs) We had to do a COVID impact statement for my tenure file. And I, I actually never turned it in because every time I tried to write it, I started crying. And so I was like, I just just didn't get in, but I think it's a good idea. Um, Mm -hmm. In, in Australia, they, for all of the grants, you have, you know, a, a statement of time that was spent elsewhere for whatever reason. So if it's, you know, for kids or bereavement and, and they're very, it, it seems to me from kind of an outsider perspective, really diligent about factoring that off in terms of judging people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, a lot of, you know, sort of like early career awards and stuff like that are starting to, um, at least nominally make allowances for, you know, leaves and you know time away from the profession um i don't have any experience with um so so the idea is that you could like you know say like yeah i'm you know 10 years post phd but i you know took time off um while i was you know having a child or you know caring for an ill parent or something like that um do do you have any experience like firsthand or secondhand with those types of exceptions being uh, granted or not granted? 
I have seen it as part of applications for positions that they explicitly state in their cover letter or el elsewhere in their in their materials. Like I took two years off to care for my children or uh, something like that. And I think that helps you realize why there might be times either during um, the years they were taking off or perhaps even after that it seems like there's less productivity, quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, because taking time off now might not prevent your papers that are in the pipeline from coming out, but it might result in fewer next year or in two years. So it's hard to measure exactly when the impact happens. Yeah, and it, I don't know, I just get the sense that with, in, you know, in particular with COVID that uh, people are acting like they're very, like they're being understanding and taking things into account, but it sometimes feels as though expectations on productivity haven't really changed. Um, and that that's something that, you know, as a field, we really need to need to grapple with, especially because the impacts of the pandemic have been very uneven. Yeah, absolutely. I really worry that any gaps that we have in discrepancies are going to really balloon in the next year or two. Already, uh, especially if you see, you know, how you know primary child caregivers, which for the most part still traditionally is women, are radically disproportionately affected, you know, by COVID. Yeah, I, I think we'll see it in, in hiring profiles, even if people try not to. And then, gosh, the freaking tenure clock extensions, rather than waiting around what someone could do with the time that was available, trying to just say you have more time, but we will pay you less, it drives me crazy. But I have I have a counter proposal, not a counter proposal, but but a, a different proposal for what it means to be early career. So so maybe. If we think about it as when you've gotten to the stage of your career where you're starting to really kind of reflect on what you're doing and like reassessing or reimagining your research path. So, so I feel like a lot of the early career, you're just in the hustle, like you're trying to figure out how to get the job. And then you're trying to figure out like all of the, like the culture of the job, right? And like the norms of the department, what it means to be, again, this is an academic perspective, but what it means to be teaching big classes for the first time, you know, like all of these things of, you know, trying to just figure it out. And you, when you're, when you're so in that, where you're learning the ropes and there's, there's something that you don't know that everyone else does and you're figuring it out, you don't have time to do that sort of reflection on what is your mission and research in a really deep way. Versus, I feel like maybe the transition with from early to mid is where you've got the ropes down enough that you're you start to have that I don't know maybe the existential crisis of like what is it that the science that I'm doing and like who you know that 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 second period of time where you really reflect who you are as a researcher and what direction you're going to go in, uh, which I think you're forced to do when you write the job talk, but then you do it and then you just have to keep hustling. Versus, at some point you hit a phase where you can reflect and maybe there's a little less external hustle pressure. I like that way of thinking career. about it. Yeah, I like that. I, I think feel it's... like I, 
Oh, sorry. I'm hopeful, at least. I'm yeah. looking forward to that period. <laughs> I feel like I experienced something similar in a much smaller scale during the PhD. Like once I was like post prelims and that I felt that my committee felt confident I could do, you know, I could be a successful graduate student. All of a sudden I was like, oh, I can just do things now. What should I be doing? <laughs> Like, what is my role here and how do I want to spend my time? Um, That's the so, alternative start of, start of early career is when you realize, like, oh, I could do this. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. And no, then when you awesome. have to become intentional about what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so is late career, is that when you do, like, the, the, the 180 and shift into another thing entirely? Yeah, or maybe that's when you you truly discover the life balance of work life. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, are you planning to do one of these things where once you get tenure, you're going to take a 180 and just go a completely different direction? Uh, I am planning to do one of those things where I get tenure and I, I try to give myself space to think. Uh, like, you know, my, my lab expanded very quickly and and we're doing tons of cool science, but we are very much in a doing phase where, you know, we have, we have six postdocs, five graduates, like it's huge. And so, you know, I'm spending eight hours a week meeting with my lab plus the time teaching. And it's, you don't have that quiet space to really reflect on what's the core mission. So I, I've set the mission for pre-tenure that's understanding how variability shapes species diversity, and then how do we differentiate historic variability from change for restoration? So that's, that's been my goal for the last five years. Um, and, and we're doing it, but I, at some point, I'm very hopeful post tenure, I'll have a little bit of quiet space to really think what's, what's the mission for the next five years and, and reflect on that a little more deeply than I've been able to right now. That's very thoughtful. I was just reflecting a little bit about like your proposed definition of, of like transitioning from early to mid career and, you know, thinking about it in terms of my own path. And like, in some ways I, right now I do feel kind of early career cause I've made a shift to focusing on aquatic ecology and I don't know things about aquatic ecology. Like, um, I, I, joked on Twitter uh, not long ago about like this weird, a weird thing about this like phase in my career is like, because of the th like tools that I know how to use, there are like kind of cool people that want to collaborate and, and work together on stuff. But also I like have to think hard about what basic limnological terms mean. Um, but I feel like on your definition that kind of pushes me a little bit more toward being mid-career. And I think I'm okay with that because the foundation of what I can do as a quantitative ecologist is like what's, and being somewhat established in that space is what is like giving me the platform to pivot and say like, you know, I'm going to focus on this other area of science. Um, and you know like learn it um and i couldn't do that if i was starting from like complete zero totally 
So question to pose to you is that, because I'm in a non-academic position now, and I, I can see this, you know, those, um, the field is a little bit different. Like it's used, I still have a lot of latitude as far as, you know, kind of defining research course. And, you know, a lot of folks within, you know, the Forest Service and, you know, USGS too does this and some other folks, like you have some latitude to kind of do that to some degree. But we have this additional kind of external pressure where you have these kind of like administrative and agency level pressures that it does seem very easy to go that direction because it's almost like the path of least resistance um for lack of a better word i'm explaining it poorly but it's like you can get sucked in down this other path that is like in no way am i denigrating it is like a completely valid thing right like a lot of that um you know directive stuff and you know working at these you know, kind of higher level stuff is really, really cool. It's not something that I'm very good at, but I end up getting like, and see like myself getting sucked in more and more, you know, to these like administrative type positions. And it's something like I feel um, that I have to actively kind of work against. So I'm kind of curious to get more of you guys, you know, Christy and Lauren, your kind of perspective on that for maybe like more of an academic sense. Um, and, you know, maybe Lauren too, since you're, you know, just on you know, tenure package and everything that how do you maintain or even establish that level of like research independence and like self-guidance? Like, how do you, you know, kind of go about that? Because I see like, it is one of the things where you can, you know, you move, we have like a panel process, which is very similar to tenure, but it happens you know, earlier, like on the four-year timescale. And at that, you kind of get this like split, like which way you want to go. And there is a monetary incentive to go more administrative. Like it pay, just pays more, right? And it's, um, you know, there's that pressure, but it's also from like a research standpoint, it becomes very difficult to keep a research kind of perspective, which I guess like to some degree, like, I mean, you can go become a department head or, you know, an associate dean or assistant dean or anything. But, you know, if you're one is interested in research, how does one kind of keep that focus to make that transition, I guess, to mid-career in that direction? In a government job or? No, no, I mean like more in an right. academic sense. Like now you see yourself, like if you're you're moving into, you know, to tenure, like what do you, do you think about that as well? Like there's kind of additional pressures, right? Because I'm sure like there's other stuff that comes like when you get to the associate or even full professor status that you have those additional service demands or requests or whatnot. Yeah, I... One, I have not thought too deeply yet about the additional service demands because I've been assuming that I'll have to think about them in future. So I'm waiting for that shoe to drop. Um, but I, it, it does seem to me that you can choose which, which dimension you want to make a big market. Like you have to do some bigger service. But, you know, you could do that by, yeah, you could become a dean uh, and you could be thinking about... Um, you know, kind of budgets and the kind of bigger picture of the whole college or department head and thinking about from the department's perspective, or you could do it by, you know, being on the board of ESA or the editor-in-chief of a journal or, you know, president of an organization. And I think, I think trying to align your service with your, with your goals and your priorities at the time. So if you, if you see a strong mission towards, towards teaching, well, then you could be on 
you know, a larger scale curriculum development. Um, but if you're seeing itself pulled towards research, I, I could see making the choice to say, I'm going to have some bigger service um, goals that are, are in the interest of promoting research. So maybe getting more involved with, you know, leadership at a long-term ecological research site or something like that, where that fulfills that expectation, but does it in a way that's aligned with research. And so trying to, I mean, like with anything you do, like it's thinking about what your goals are, right? Like, do I review that paper? What, what are my goals about reviewing? And do I do it? Do I, you know, what service do I take on? Is it, is it something that I'm doing because it aligns with my you know, my professional interests, or maybe it's something that just aligns with my personal values enough that I, I do it anyway. But I, I, I would see if given the choice between service opportunities, choosing the one that aligns with pushing either your own research or promoting the type of research that you value being, being a goal, if that's, if that's momentum you want to carry. Yeah, I think that service aspect that um, both of you are talking about um, almost makes me think of transitioning to late career. So just to go back to what Lauren was saying, like in early career, you're like trying to get the job, trying to keep the job. And then in mid-career, you might be getting to do the job. You're so excited you get to do it. You're confident you can do it and you enjoy it. And then the way I've seen folks do late career or start to transition to late career is start thinking of, okay, I've had this really good career or I'm having, not that it ends, um, and reflecting on it and thinking of what are things or service that I could do to help others along the way. And um, in terms of, for example, even in research, like um, folks at the LTER might set up experiments that they won't get to sample, like long-term, like forced diversity experiments that will take 20 years to give, uh, maybe answer the questions they're hoping to answer, but um, someone else will be writing those papers and making those measurements. So I think that might be sort of the, the types of questions that might actually lead you to go into late career and using that power that you have and that expertise to help others and give back. So is maybe one way to offer a different, entirely other different way to think of early, mid, late or whatever is what if we could, what if it was defined externally? Like you think of like you become early career once you become an expert in your field and that the transition to mid career is more when you become like a nationally recognized expert in your field. And then late is like, oh, you're internationally renowned kind of within you know this field, which I guess I can immediately see the problem of that is that that trajectory can happen very quickly in some cases, right? Like it just kind of can, but um, I do like that. Like you're right, like people setting up experiments that kind of go on and on and on and kind of something on that. But I know, what about some type of external, not say validation, but external criteria or something? Yeah, see, I don't like the external criteria because I, I, I think that they don't do a good job of validating the variability in people's experiences and goals, right? Like, you know, I, I think part of the reason we're asking this question is because we, we want to move away from like external, um, external criteria and, you know, more toward the, the meaning that those 
criteria can signify and how that can vary across um, people on, you know, different trajectories and, you know, with different other things going on in their lives that are, you know, maybe not a hundred percent this career. I think it also was a question of what, what external body, right? So the examples you're giving are kind of renowned for, for science. Um, but you could still in that regard, be very early career in other aspects of your job and, you know, versus external, like of, of tenure and then going up for full ideally is kind of a holistic of all aspects of the job for, from an academic perspective. And so I think about what the, who the external body is that you're weighing it against. And I think this becomes um, very interesting too, thinking about the types of positions that are um, starting to be advertised or developed um, where there might be joint appointments with departments that have very different um, sort of expectations or ways to measure success, um, on quotes. Um, or where you might have a position that is um, joint like research and extension, or um, I don't know, those sorts of combined uh, positions or new ways of thinking about what the job should even be that perhaps, yeah, we need to be thinking about like what, who should be defining it and why should we stay with this like more normative traditional ways of recognition? I absolutely agree. This, you're kind of curious. I was thinking of like, you know, we have um, like our equivalent of like tenure expectations. Like that's one of the things that you tick off is like, okay, if, well, if you were invited for like a regional conference, that counts as like, you know, one point or whatever. But if it's like a national thing, that counts as three points. If it's like an international invitation, it's worth six. Like it's, it steps up and it's like a point classification system. It's basically how it works, right? And they tally up all your points and say, this is what you should be. <laughs> you know, like a um, career status recognition. Um, but yeah, that's, you're right. That's totally a normative thing. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, of you know, problems with that. And you're right, it doesn't really assess anything other than scientific merit. So yeah, I'm just curious. So, um, and uh, get everybody's input on this. So we talked about early career awards. Uh, it's come up a little bit. And I think part of that is also because that's often the only time that you really see this like written out is when, you know, and I think it, it is potentially problematic to view it through that type of system anyway. Um, it's just like kind of an awards-based thing. But if you were to redesign the idea of an early career award, um, or if you don't want to redesign it, if you're just like, no, this is the model that I think exists already in the universe and works pretty well. Um, what do you think about that? Or how would you approach the redesign or which one do you like? Uh, oh, man. Well, I mean, I, the, the two early career awards in my orbit are the one that ESA gives, and I, I think it's seven years post-PhD. Um, and if I were to tweak that at all, it would be seven years professional employment and, and not counting towards that clock time off. And I, I don't know if they take that into account or not, so maybe, maybe they do. Um, and then the other one is the, the NSF career award. And that one, I think the timing is makes sense that you need to do it pre-tenure. And then that's that's kind of the easiest benchmark they have. And it allows flexibility if people are you know changing their tenure clock for 
for personal reasons, you know, that that could be reflected in your timeline there. So that one seems about on par with me. And, and the ESA one seems about as about as good as you can get. Um, the ones that are based on your age seem totally inappropriate, uh, especially now. Yeah, I agree that it should be more about the time you've spent actually working in a position. And I think that would be helpful also in um, postdoc fellowships. So oftentimes they say two years post-PhD or three years post-PhD. And that is difficult. Like there might be other things you want to be doing in that year. You've just gone through a long period of thinking about this one thing. Maybe you want to do something else or you have family expectations to spend time I don't know, relaxing, you deserve it, or taking care of someone, or I don't know. I, I just think it's, we're, we might be losing out on good candidates um, because of very restrictive ways of thinking about um, time. Like, it seems like it's, it's a privilege to be able to just go straight from one thing to the other. Um, and it kind of reinforces the privilege, the, the people that can go from one thing to the other. And achieve these goals uh, chronologically within two years or seven years or whatever. It just seems to me that it's just reinforcing privilege. I totally agree. I also think we should have more flexibility with when the postdoc starts, when you get the fellowship, because you have these very narrow windows of like, I have some funding, do I apply for this? And then I lose my funding, but I have to take it right away. That's a, that's a different issue, but kind of gets at the same of like helping someone to to be the best they can be without having to be it right on, you know, doing it right in the moment that is that is expected of the of the funding body. Yeah, I, I agree with both those things. And, you know, if this is a not entirely self uninterested take on this, but, you know, if if I were trying to do this, um, trying to kind of reform this system, if you will, I would just really like push for more flexibility for people that just aren't on a typical, uh, you know, a typical, like, you know, PhD, postdoc, tenure track, you know, faculty trajectory. Um, Cause there's a little, a lot of variation, what that path looks like. Um, and sometimes it doesn't end end at a tenure track position, but I think that that is still looked on as the gold standard, even though there's a lot of great science that happens um, in, in other settings. Lauren, Christy, thank you guys so much for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Please come back, you know, again, um, when you talk about, you know, whatever, we're definitely glad to have great cool people who are doing cool stuff. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having <laughs> us. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Thank you guys for listening where you can, uh, find us, uh, wherever good podcasts are available for free and whatnot. And thank you for listening. This-